Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashley, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, Issue 9, Tales in the Sand. I'm joined by two men, Sean. (laughs) Hi, everybody. (laughs) And Ben. (laughs) Yes, uh, I'm a man. I'm a man. <laughs> Heard the tale. I've had all the necessary snippings. I'm good to go. Procedures done. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown, where we'll let you know who created the issue, and then the catch-up to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown that gives you a synopsis of that week's issue, and we follow that up with the deep dive when we really get into everything that happened. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and our favorite non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Six sections to get through. So let's get going. Ben, over to you for the rundown. Thanks, Ashley. This issue, number nine, Tales in the Sand was released on August 1st, 1989. It was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Mike Dringenberg. Cover was by Dave McKean. Inker was Malcolm Jones III. The original colorist was Robbie Bush. Letterer was Todd Klein. And it was edited by Karen Berger. Sean, why don't you catch us up? All right. So... All is right in the world. Morpheus has completed his quest and made peace with himself and is ready to rebuild the dreaming. And what a sweet and moving meeting he had with his lovely sister, Death. Boy, that dream is one heck of a guy, isn't he? Not really too different from us. Who doesn't like feeding pigeons in the park? Except, remember a few issues ago when uh, Etrigan the demon was leading Dream through hell to meet Lucifer? And they stopped at a prison cell on a mountainside where he met someone he seemed to know. So her name was Nada, and she tearfully begged Dream, you know, is calling him her her love, uh, to release her after 10,000 years of imprisonment in hell. Your forgiveness can free me, she tells him. Coldly, Dream tells her that while he still loves her, he has not yet forgiven her. And he walks on without a look back. Not exactly a feeding birds in the park kind of thing to do. Um, But I mean, hey, whatever happened, she must have really done something terrible to deserve being condemned to hell, right? Right? Totally. Uh, Well, about that. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Ashley. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, in this issue, we open with a compelling introduction to the nature of tale telling, specifically breaking it down on the tales you tell children, the tales that women tell one another, and then the tales that are told to men. Uh, we then open up to a frame narrative featuring a newly circumcised man and his grandfather walking through the desert. So, you know, something you do every weekend. The grandfather instructs the young man to find an object with the only detail being, you'll know it when you find it. 
Such a grandpa thing to do. The young man then returns with a heart-shaped shard of glass. Upon its retrieval, the grandfather begins to share the story of Nada, the queen of the first people. Though she ruled wisely and judiciously, she would take no husband. And this is until she encounters a mysterious man looking up at her in the middle of the night. The reader is told that it is love at first sight. And in her infatuation, she seeks the assistance of the king of birds, who warns her the man she seeks is in fact no man nor god. Despite this, a small weaver bird persists in assisting her, fetches her a berry from a tree that grows on the mountains of the sun, where I frequently get my coffee, and consuming this berry, (laughs) Nada is transported to the dream world. There she encounters Kaikul and recognizes him instantly as one of the endless. In fear and despair, for no mortal shall love and endless, she coughs up the berry and flees Kaikul despite his protestations. After multiple violent attempts at escape, they consummate the relationship, and the son, seeing this, naturally shoots a fireball at Nada's city of glass in repulsion. Seeing the consequences of their relationship, Nada, in her grief, throws herself from the mountaintop. She willingly pursues Grandmother Death, despite Kayakul's, once again, protestations thrice, and much to his chagrin, the, st- the story trails off and the young man is disappointed. They then return to their tribe. The reader is then told there is another version of the tale with a different ending, but that story is never told to men. So we're going to go find some heart-shaped glass and come right back. All right. So now we're going to really go in deep here, looking at what is really going on here with the artistry inside of this specific issue. So this is many people kind of working to make this happen. The, all the various artists, the colorists, the letterer, all working together to try and kind of get this. And we really have some wonderful work done here, specifically by Malcolm Jones III. So, Sean, I thought you could kind of weave us a tale here of what's <laughs> happening with the inks in the sand. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, kind of focus particularly today on some of those like less celebrated roles in comic production, like inks. Um, Because one, this is just a really gorgeous issue that demands attention to all of the elements that go into it. And two, because I think the sort of melodic folktale form that the narrative takes um, lends a story a simplicity that allows us as readers to kind of slow down and appreciate uh, the subtleties of the issue without, you know, a narrow focus on plot. Like, it follows a rhythm that we're familiar with from, you know, uh, fairy tales, fables, and things like that. And so you can kind of rely on your understanding of that rhythm and kind of come to appreciate those additional elements in new ways. So I thought today would be a good day to celebrate some of these contributors who aren't as well known. I'll start, like you mentioned, Ben, with Malcolm Jones III. Um, Details about this brilliant inker are pretty sparse. Uh, so sparse that even the years of his life, 1959 to 1995 or 6, uh, are in question. 
but we know that Jones went to school in New York at the New York High School of Art and Design, uh, where he met one of the co-founders of Milestone Media, Michael Davis. So I remember I talked about uh, Milestone Media in our show on episode seven of the TV series. Um, I don't, I don't think I said that Jones was directly involved with Milestone in any way, but if I did, I was mistaken. See, he was actually invited uh, to join as a founding member, but he actually refused, believing that the all-black comic studio would, quote, never work, according to Mm. Michael Davis. Um, After high school, he graduated from the Pratt Institute and got his start, according to the best information I could find, on DC's New Talent Showcase, issue 15, in 1985. So he had a really remarkable, though brief, career inking some of DC's most notable books and covers, including The Question, Batman, Hellblazer, and some work for Marvel, including doing some pencils. I was able to find uh, some of his pencil work online, and I'll share a cool convention sketch of dream uh that i found from 1992 in the discord mm. uh it's really great i, I love I, I just love convention sketches really you know like just evoking like you you have to evoke the mood and sense of a character in just a few lines they're great um but one of my f- personal favorite works of jones was his inks on the dc elseworld story batman and dracula Uh, red rain so Mm. i don't know if either of you have ever encountered this book in any way in the past but elseworld stories are dc comic stories that don't need to tie into any continuity they're Mm. sort of just like what ifs uh you know there's one where superman lands his rocket ship from krypton uh lands in the ussr uh in the (sighs) you know, in the 30s instead of in Smallville, Kansas, and sort of, you know, how does the world change uh, with a communist Superman? That's so cool. I'm actually watching a television show called For All Mankind that has a similar... Alan loves that show. Oh, it's so cool. So it has a similar premise where the Soviets land on the moon one month before the Americans land on the moon. And the question is, is what does that do to everything? And it's so, it's such a cool idea. Huh. Such a cool idea. Nice. I haven't heard of that one. But yeah, so I like stories like that. You know, I like those, you know, well, counterfactuals in, in, in the case of that, that show you mentioned, but um, just those kind of weird what-if stories. And the Batman and Dracula one is working off Kelly Jones's pencils and Doug Munch's script was just so extremely creepy and gothic. Like Batman, you know, grows these fangs and bat wings and stuff it, it just traumatized me as a child it was disgusting it was wonderful uh, <laughs> you know as i did mention in a previous episode you know jones did die by suicide and it strikes me as really mm-hmm. deeply sad that so little is known about his life and experiences in the comics field outside of the work itself you know it's still there's wow. not a lot of there's not, I mean, there there are a fair amount, but there's still, I would say, you know, 
black creators are still underrepresented in the medium. And it, I would just love to know about more about what his experiences were. But there's not much of that. You know, his peers have kind of heaped praises on his work. For instance, Colleen uh, Doran, who penciled the Sandman issue facade that was collected in uh, the Dream Country mm. trade, calls him a wonderful artist. He made my Sandman art better, and he would be so happy to see what has become of the wonderful story to which he contributed so much. Huh. Uh, Neil Gaiman calls him the unsung hero of pen, brush, and deadline. And our, our pal Mikey D says, the thing is, if he'd stuck with it, if he hadn't killed himself, if he'd stuck with it for another year or so, he would have won every award that an inker could win. But as one kind of touching blog post that I ran across from uh, Sharanya M. noted, none of these statements testify to Malcolm's life, really. And there's only one picture I could find of him and no obituary that I could locate online. Oh, wow. And I wonder why this is. You know, is it because of the stigma surrounding suicide, uh, because he was a young black man, because he worked in a niche industry whose few, like, celebrities are writers and pencilers without exception? Um, you know, I do wish I could memorialize the man, but in the absence of much certain knowledge, I'd like to talk a little bit about the role inkers play and the work they do in bringing ink and paper to life to create a story. So... Uh, DC Comics actually included a great brief crash course on what an inker does in their monthly book several years ago, because what does an inker do is a question that would so often come up at conventions. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll also share, uh, that page in the discord so you all could see it, but the author whose name wasn't listed there writes, Quote, an inker's basic job is to take a page of penciled artwork and prepare it for reproduction by rendering the penciled lines in India ink. But the job is much more than just tracing the lines the penciler put down. The inker adds depth and weight to a page, giving it a three-dimensional look. Generally, the inker also finalizes the textures and shadows, end quote. And in many cases, the inkers will add detail and backgrounds that don't appear in the original pencils. So it makes this, you know, comic book world feel lived in and real. And the cool thing about that, that kind of page that I found is that they show an uninked panel and then they show it inked by three different inkers with mm. different, completely different styles. How and cool. so you can kind of see on the page the way that they've, chosen to add detail the way that they've altered the way that like light falls on the page it's really interesting oh. wow that's really cool yeah so i hope uh do check the discord now I'll, I'll make sure you all can see that but yeah so the play of light and shadows the dimensions indicated in a figure or a space all these elements are crucial to the mood and tone of a story and thus the meaning we make of it so look at how important light and darkness are in Tales in the Sand, this issue, right? Um, you've got the harsh desert at sunset, the lush and verdant forest Nada travels through while looking for a dream, uh, the dim twilight of the dreaming, and then the inky blackness surrounding Nada at the edge of death's realm. 
you know, if the story is to feel real and the characters are to communicate emotion in their expressions, then like we as readers, we have to believe they are people that exist in a world. And if, you know, if the sun is here, it will cast this shadow. And if a person glares or smiles, the lines on their face will change in this way. You know, there's so many fantastic things that happening, happening. So in a book like Sandman that relies on frequently a sort of realism in the art, those details are very important for making these things come alive. Um, so for some specific examples, we could look at the face of the storyteller in the early on in the issue. So I'm thinking uh, this would be the third page, I believe. Uh, the one in red. Yes, in your version, which we'll get My into version. soon, the one in red. Uh, in this one that I'm looking at, it's more of like a sandy brown. But... You'll see that the, the storyteller, the grandfather, his face is shrouded in shadow with this depth that indicates a sort of great age and experience. And more remarkable still, his eyes are like completely blacked out. And it kind of makes him appear both mysterious and distant. Uh, he could be blind, you know, Homer or Milton telling a tale of the ancient past, right? Mm. So despite our reliance on the eyes as a conveyor of emotion, he still never appears like sinister or anything. He always appears kind of thoughtful and caring. And I think that's a testament to the care Malcolm Jones uh, brought to the page itself. I also want to call out the panel as Nada just awakes in like the spirit realm at the edge of, you know, grandmother death's realm where she's kind of hunched over and hugging herself. This is right after she uh, jumps off the cliff. Yeah, yeah. She's kind of hunched over, she's shivering, she's surrounded by these thick black lines. And it's honestly rare to see ink looking so, like, just inky on a comics page. But here is, it has the effect of giving the darkness itself weight and matter. It almost looks as though, like, instead of using a brush... Jones used his finger to smear ink across the page in that panel in particular. Um, it adds immeasurably to Nada's sense of despair and isolation, you know, and it's the one way that we have as readers to connect with the, uh, you know, the too brief life of Malcolm Jones. Yeah, that was wonderful, Sean. I think that's one of those things where, like you said, I can see why DC gets questions about it all the time, you know, because you're like, all right, so you have someone who draws it with a pencil and you have someone who colors it so what is this inking step and i i had always assumed it was almost like um uh formality like like typesetting or something like that where you're just yeah all you're literally doing is just kind of copy tracing so that way it kind of it pops out but um i'm really glad you kind of you know really walked us through I mean, I'm even looking at just the image right below the one you were just talking about where you have the blackness in the eyes of dream with his mask on and mm -hmm. you know those were i mean that's inking choices that he would have made to have the glare on the right eye but you know or the you know the our right and then on his left just like that deep pool of darkness there yeah that one almost looks you know entirely ink i imagine the pencils were extremely sparse on that panel i feel like that's that's 
that's mostly uh, the inker adding that in. You know, it even conveys emotion in in those in those like glassy black eyes on Dream's helm, right? Yeah, it you seems see mournful. you see sorrow, yeah, sorrowful yeah. and mournful, right? Yeah, yeah. I was always so bad in art class at any kind of shadowing, shading, cross-hatching. Just terrible. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> you didn't do a lot of shading on the upper lip. Yeah, you know, real, real bad at that. You know, I'm actually a really, really poor artist, you know, so I don't mean that financially. I mean that skill-wise, so. <laughs> I gave yeah. up when I couldn't do noses. Could never get uh, noses right. Uh, I was like, well, stick to drawing birds or something. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> birds famous for not having noses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, producer Patrick is a is a very um, incredible artist with multimedia and clay, like all sorts of stuff. So it may have also been that I was always just comparing myself to what he was doing because we were taking the same art classes together and mm-hmm. just being like, oh, well, mine's trash uh, compared to that. <laughs> so we're just going to move along. Move along. I believe that. I can see, yeah. I can see Pat being uh, being pretty good visual art. So speaking of something visual, something really cool that happens in this folktale that we get is the coloring of the weaver birds and why they look like they do. And so Ashley, I thought you could talk to us about weaver birds. Yeah, so I'll be honest, listeners, today's episode with my deep dives, you know, I think you're used to probably getting two fire hoses from Sean and I, whereas today it's like Sean's fire hose um, deep dive and then my like sprinkler today. (laughs) It's a lot of like little things that I got excited about. It's like Um, a deep dive, not a deep dive. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. I'm not throwing you down the wall. As Jason Concepcion would say. <laughs> and this one is is a shout out honestly to um my my brother-in-law who <laughs> there's you guys don't know this but so my brother-in-law is an episcopal priest and there is a weird sort of sub twitter grouping that is Episcopal bird Twitter, and that is what it's called. There is this like odd tradition of Episcopal priests also getting into birding at the same time that they're ordained. Um, and so, you know, we'll see how long that Twitter community lasts, but it exists. And so every time we go and visit him, I learn new bird facts. Uh, so I figured I could give him some bird facts about weaver birds. But weaver birds in general are just really uh, compelling creatures because they're so social and they specifically um, are found in Africa, but like central and southern Africa. Mm. Um, And so there are lots of different, there are a lot of different types of weaver birds. And as you would expect with a lot of different bird species, the males are very colorful and then the females are generally brown. Um, And then the weaver bird that we encounter in this specific issue is a female weaver bird. So there's a lot to unpack there with regard to uh, folktales and narratives and um, the female versions of any species of animal having some sort of narrative as to why it's brown or why it's drab or why it's like not colorful like the males are. Um, So there's, there's something to unpack with that, but Weaver birds in general are just really 
uh, fascinating birds, and I just thought it would be wrong not to highlight them when they play such a big <laughs> role in this issue. Um, so like I said, generally found in Central and Southern Africa. They're named, as you can imagine, for their elaborately woven nests. The males typically will weave them to try to attract mates. And then depending on the kind of weaver bird it is, some will will craft these woven nests for like their own families or maybe for like a small grouping of weaver birds. But then uh, there are sociable weaver birds which build these elaborate like apartment-like structures of nests that will take up like several tiers of tree branches and they look Ooh. huge, like just massive. If you ever just Google an image of a weaver bird nest, it looks like a giant woven apartment building. It's insane. <laughs> it's impressive that the trees can actually hold all their weight um, because of just how big they are. And they do this for defense, for protection. And then they also um, communally raise all of their young. So they have all of all of this protection amongst one another. And then kind of like the weaver bird we see in the issue, they're very sociable. They're helpful. Um, they're, they're not shy amongst one another. Um, and I would also note that if you have uh, trypophobia, do not look up weaver bird nests because it will trigger that for sure. Wait, um, what is that? And I'll say, if you don't know if you have it, looking it up can be dangerous because yeah. you might throw up. So yeah, so so Sean, trypophobia is the fear of like clusters, like honeycombs or like seed pods, seeds, yeah. spores, that sort of thing. You know, like really oh. tiny clusters of like little holes. Um, yeah. So even my description of it, I'm sorry, listeners, if you have this, you're probably like, um, but because of these weaver bird dwellings, there there are a bunch of like little holes because they have to enter somehow. Um, so that might trigger that. Actually, can just on a quick tangent, I learned about that because my wife has it. Oh no! And um, and so then I was at work the next day, and I was like, "Hey, has anybody heard of this thing?" They're all like, "No," and they're like, "What is it?" So I pulled up a picture. I was like, "It's this," and I went, and I got to I got to one of my coworkers, and she was just like, "Ooh," just like involuntarily. Yep. She was like, "What did that just do to me?" And I was like, "Oh, you have tryptophobia." <laughs> She's like, "What?" And I was like, "You have a disgust." It's it's more like. They call it a phobia, but it's more of it's a disgust reaction. It's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and it yeah, has to deal with like, like an... plague and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah, it's 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 odd. It's very odd. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just an intense like gag reflex you have. I remember there was a viral image that had been faked when I was in college that triggered all that, and that's how everyone learned all in mass on Facebook what it was. It yep. was just it was the, it was the worst. Ooh, live the on the air, worst. Sean. You should pull up a picture and see if you have the <laughs> gag reflex and get it on the mic if you do. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm pretty, I think I get, like, I feel like I would have eaten less, like, tripe soup in my life if I had mm -hmm. that. Because, like, tripe has that sort of, like, like little, right. like, sort of honeycomb structure. Well, yeah, maybe we'll do, it for the, we'll do it for the for the patrons. We'll get a oh, okay. video reaction. <laughs> you guys Just can so have fun with that one. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so interesting. Huh. But it's a pretty uh, high percentage. Fun. It's like 5 or 6% of at least Americans will, will have tryptophobia. It's, it's pretty high. So it's pretty easy to find somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty horrifying. I can't wait to find out like after we record which of our coworkers this is. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Sean has been become very quickly the least popular person in the office. <laughs> he starts putting it in Slack, like just DMing right. everybody in Slack. How, how does it make you feel? How does it make you feel? <laughs> All that to say, Weaver bird nests are very impressive. The Weaver bird themselves are incredibly industrious. Uh, their social structures, again, are really impressive and intense when it when it comes to then when you see all of the birds that are illustrated in this issue you know you see all these you start with the king of birds who's massive so it just it helps you scale just how small weaver birds are and how high up their nests have to be to protect themselves from predators and sometimes they'll have like trap doors like they'll make one hole like hole that looks like it's the entrance to their nest, but it's really a fake door that has its own like sort of pouch that then like a snake or something will get stuck in and mm. they'll enter in a different way. Mm. Um, so it's just, again, they're really, really clever creatures. And that's why I'm kind of thrilled that they, they are in this issue and that they're featured in this issue. And of course, like the smallest of the birds and the most industrious of the birds would know of something as obscure as a seed from a tree of the mountains of the sun. It's just, it's just, it, it's fitting. And there are a lot of African folktales about weaver birds in general. Some of them have to do with them uh, being a little pretentious because they know so much about building. So a lot of those folktales will be them explaining to other animals how they should live or how they should craft their homes. Mm. There's one where a weaver bird is basically giving unsolicited advice to monkeys about how they should shield themselves from the elements. And the monkey's like, we're going to take your advice, but we're also going to beat you up. Uh, so, <laughs> so, and it like ends with, and that is how the weaver bird learned not to give uh, unsolicited advice. Like that's like the moral of the story. So you frequently see that, but generally speaking, when they're featured in folktales, it's because they're industrious, they're helpful, they know a lot, and they're they're frequently seen in community. So that's what's interesting then about the featuring of this weaver bird in that it's shown as like a solitary figure as opposed to in community with a bunch of other weaver birds. Not common. Okay. I feel like I have some some weaver bird types in my extended family, you know. So. <laughs> I will say for your Episcopal friend um, relative, uh, there are some weaver birds, uh, part of their uh, family, uh, are called bishops. And there are yes. Episcopal bishops. So yes. there you go. That's true. That's Full very circle. true. Full circle here. <laughs> On a... Uh, Orn- on Ornithology Corner. Uh, last week it was Sean. This week it's Ashley. This is great. <laughs> this is a recurring recurring bit. Cornell, sponsor us, please. It'd be great. <laughs> Talk about Hilariously, I do have their birding app on my phone. I love it. I love oh, it's it. a great app. It's a good app. It is a great, it's a great app. app. All right, so Sean, speaking of looking at some of the the coloring that we get, you know, you kind of took us down this path. And then one of the things when you were talking that you had mentioned um, when you were talking about some of the ink work, you said it's on the third page. And I said, oh, yeah, it's the red panel. And then you said, well, in your copy, it's the red panel. And so I thought maybe you might want to talk a bit more about, you know, why my copy looks different than what other people might be looking at, especially if they're reading newer editions of this. Yeah, absolutely. I had always planned to talk about color in this episode, so it was nice that it actually came up in our conversation, you know, on our, our exchanging notes before the show. Yeah, it was. That it was cool. you and I are working with 
completely different colored versions of the same comic book. The one that you're reading has uh, the original coloring by Robbie Bush, and mine has the redone colors uh, by Xylenol Studios, which is a, a, a coloring studio run by uh, colors Lee Luffridge. <laughs> yeah, and and so you know, in some places, you know, I haven't really kind of caught on to this because we'd mentioned that the issues were colored by like Daniel Daniel Vazo, um, but actually, Daniel Vazo didn't start coloring Sandman until part two of the Season of Mists storyline. Oh wow! Um, so none of the issues that we've read have been were originally colored by him, and Xylenol yeah. Studios wasn't involved until the publication of the Absolute Edition of Sandman 2006. Absolute editions are these big, massive, heavy books that DC puts out uh, of some of their, you know, col- their collected editions of some of their like most popular and most influential titles. Before that, uh, Robbie Bush had done the original colors for every issue from issue one up to uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats, which we're still several away from. He did all of those. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, the issues as probably Ashley and I are reading them and as probably most people listening to this would be reading them, unless you have the original single issues or early collected editions... Uh, or a digital edition based on scans, are not the colors the original readers of The Sandman would have seen. Okay, and I found... that's, that's really helpful, because I remember, you know, I would Google to double-check my own work, and be like, yeah. these two are not the same. Why are they telling me different things? I'm going to go with the book I have in front of me, because that must be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and do you have one of the more recent books? I have uh, the same thing you have, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, so we're we're getting you know, all the new stuff. And I found, because once they went through all the work of doing that 2006 complete recoloring, in 2010, they started using it for all the collected editions. So the new colors are all you'll get for any print Mm. of Sandman, you know, moving forward. And so, like, I found an announcement of the recoloring from like an old vertigo comics blog but i had to like go to the Wayback machine to find it since vertigo doesn't really exist anymore mm-hmm. and, and you're clicking like day month and you're just like please be please be here on this day please be here on this day please be here on this was, day <laughs> yeah that was a, that was a hassle because this blog was published in like 2010 and so i can you know i can also post some images from this in the discord but i was surprised as like when ben uh showed me his copy just to like how different it is and how much the palette relied on like greens and oranges. Very, very different. And it's fascinating to me to think of how the experience of reading this issue may have been for its original audience, especially given how important color is in this particular book. You know, you could do this book in black and white, I guess, but boy, 
uh, would that change the effect? It's like, it's a hot, fiery comic, you know? There's desert yeah. sun, there's tales told by firelight, there's a burning berry, there's a city smote by the flames of the sun, you know? Color is extremely important. There's lots of browns, oranges, yellows, blues, blacks in my version, and almost no other colors at all. For instance, red, in my version, there's almost no red in the entire book. The only, the only use of red is the, the red of Nada's dress uh -huh. and the red of Dream's ruby and then the red of Nada's blood. And that's it. Everything else is Wait. orange, but those things are red. Nada's dress is red, so in, in mine, it's a light blue. Really? What? No! Wow. Yeah, so this decision... This will be a very exciting uh, Discord week with all these different photos, <laughs> I, I will tell you. <laughs> wow, so this decision had a big... Because, you know, I had taken it as the the red being uh, an important color in you know connecting these different ideas in the issue. And so to see that change now is pretty wild. Yeah, because in Ben's, it it, she almost looks like Cleopatra. Yeah, her whole getup, as opposed to oh, and there's I mean there's red everywhere, just not know? in her dress. Right, like here, like there's red, you know, in this in this one there's red, there's red, and then it switches to this blue when she's dead. Yeah, huh. so we're yeah. looking at like the fire, we're looking at the flames in Dream's cloak, we're looking at even whole panels covered colored monochrome with red it's extremely right. present in right. ben's version of the book in the original colors and just not there almost at all used very uh deliberately and you know very economically in the yeah. newer version so crazy to think about Interesting. you know how but cool the thing is colors aren't often credited with the same level as of artistry as writers and pencilers even though it requires like a stunning amount of work and resources, particularly before computer coloring came along in the in the late eighties. Um, so you think, for instance, how many independent books, including like everything from like Mouse to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, were yeah. published in black and white, right? Uh -huh. um, and in some cases, I'm sure it's due to like an aesthetic choice, but for many, it's simply that it was very expensive and time consuming to color a book. And it's a much lower barrier to publication if you just get it out in black and white. Um, but color overall has been around in comics for over a hundred years. Originally comics were colored with like special dyes on photocopies of the original art. All right, check this out. Okay, special dyes on the photocopies of the original art. Mm. And then those colors were indexed with a code representing a color that the printer could use because uh -huh. the printers could only use cyan, the like blue, magenta, mm. yellow, and black. Every color you see on an wow. old comics page is some combination of those four. That's so that tracks. cool. Yeah, yeah. And they would be just to be mixed at different strengths to match like the intended color. So you might have one that's like 25% yellow or 50% or 100% depending on mm. what you're going for and what you're combining with. But that's what it was. It's 25, 50, and 100. 
So a really a surprisingly limited palette, um, made even more so by, check this out, restrictions on content. So DC, for example, avoided using the color black almost entirely, especially on, a, in, in, on interiors. You just like couldn't use black. DC didn't like it. <laughs> so you have four colors to work with and one of them is forbidden. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I found this wonderful blog post from Todd Klein, our beloved ah, letterer yes. of the Sandman. Yeah. And where he talks about the amount of work that goes into coloring. And he points out how the limited palette combined with the cheap newsprint paper that comics were printed on made basically any colors other than the primary ones likely to come out looking like mud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nevertheless, colors would put in a ton of work. So they would like draw up their own color guides by, you know, mixing the four colors at different intensities. And then they'd fill up big glass bottles of watercolor dyes from the publisher's office. And they would mix those according to their color guides in smaller bottles to the appropriate ratio. Ah. And even then the colorist's actual paints never made it to the printed page, right? Because instead color separators would use those guides um, they would create like these printable colors using color masks that were typically made of paint on acetate or rubilith film. So like one mask would be created for each value of a single color. So like a comic, a single comics page would have three blue masks, one at 25%, one at 50% and one at a hundred percent. And that would create when they layered those over each other with the right ratio in the appropriate spot on the page that would give you like the actual say like blues that would appear on the page because they would photograph that onto a piece of film negative so complicated so cool so cool so you would have you would have like hundreds of these uh color separations out just for a single issue um and then you know Todd Klein point out that it's a, quote, a very complex system and one with lots of room for errors, of which there were many. And even when everything went perfectly, the poor quality of paper used at the time resulted in some pretty poor results. Uh, so further, even color was almost by necessity an afterthought for early comics. Uh, there's one article I saw by Nic- Nicole Hervo that points out that colorists are often brought on to a project at the very end of development, sometimes leaving them with little to no say in creative direction. And they're at the end of the production timeline, which burdens them with rigid deadlines, even when writers and fellow artists deliver their parts late. So, you know, you got Mike Drinkenberg there, like, taking three days to pencil a page and then like burning, burning them if he doesn't like them. And Robbie Bush is just sitting there like, oh man, you son of, you know? <laughs> Because the book's got to go out on time no matter what. Yeah. So overall, this meant that those poor results that Klein mentioned were almost expected as there was no time in the production schedule for corrections. And as uh, there's a really great video that Comic Tropes put out on colorists. And uh, he points out that this was especially significant for books like The Incredible Hulk, right, who appeared as gray in his earliest appearances but was later 
Yeah, mm-hmm. later on they turned That's him right. uh, they turned him green because they found that they couldn't produce consistent gray coloring without obscuring Jack Kirby's artwork. So he just turns green all of a sudden. That's amazing. Oh. And it wasn't until decades later that they gave like an in-story reason for that change. It was just like kind of swept under the rug for the longest time. I just thought they like decided green looked cooler. And I was like, yeah, I agree. Because of the limitations of the technology in coloring. Um, For example, or, you know, like that, that changed over time because by the eighties, readers were willing to pay more for better quality books. You know, they had the direct market where they're selling, instead of going to newsstands, they could like go directly to comic shops, get people who are like really invested. So they would have better paper, uh, more paint options. So they introduced like a 75% strength. Remember I told you it was like 25, 50 or hundred. That was it. So then they get a, they get a 75 uh, in the eighties and on newsprint, that difference was like hardly notable. But with improved paper stock, it made the colors kind of much more lush and vibrant. Mm. And then in the late 80s, you had digital coloring finally introduced, and that opened up like a whole new world of colors that could keep up with changes in paper and printing technology. Mm. Um, and actually, a later colorist of Sandman, Steve Olaf, uh, he was one of the early pioneers of digital coloring. Uh, so that's all pretty great, right? Unless unless you happen to be reprinting an older work. See, because colorists back in the day, they knew that off-white newsprint would dull the vibrancy of their colors. So they tried to accommodate that fact by bumping up the saturation way above what you would expect to see on the page. So on the pages the colorist is working with, the colors would appear garish, but then they would be mellowed out by the final Mm. printing. Okay. And this worked really well at the time. But with reprints using improved technology, those original saturated garish colors looked wildly out of place on the page. So if you look at new paintings with old colors, it ends up looking like subtly wrong somehow. Like if you like watch a movie or TV show with that motion smoothing turned on on like a newer TV, you know how it oh, just... Right. It, it just feels weird. Yeah, exactly. Ashley's making a face. It, it, and that's and that's kind of how it appears. So these are the types of problems that contributed to Neil and DC eventually deciding to recolor the Sandman for that 2006 Absolute Edition. And he says at the time, uh, Neil Gaiman, the original technology means that with every new printing on cleaner paper with sharper inks, it looks worse. There was never the time or the money to fix anything in the old days, and stuff simply went out as it was, sometimes to the detriment of the story. As things went on, we got to computerize the color, and the technology gradually made things better. Compare preludes and nocturnes to the kindly ones, just from a standpoint of color, and you'll see what I mean. So the Sandman is being published during this time where there's this kind of revolution in color technology, and, you know... I think you'll see this bend as you follow along through, especially if you go with that digital edition you have with the original coloring, it'll start to look a lot different as the Mm. years go on. So the thorny side of this issue is that comic book colors aren't just a matter of like making changes so that the work fits the technology of the time. You know, it's not just like doing like an HD remaster or something. Colorists are artists making aesthetic decisions to serve the work. 
As far back as the 50s, artists like Marie Severin, working for EC Comics, studied which colors looked best and sharper against each other. She thought about the impact of colors and the detail that would be revealed by one color over another. So, for example, that panel we were looking at earlier that was like totally red for in, in Ben's copy. Um, she did stuff like that all the time where she'd use monochrome colors and she found, for instance, that red or yellow worked best for uh, beheadings and dismemberments. <laughs> you know, so this is the kind of stuff she thought about. And in fact, many early colorists were women. Um, and that tradition is continued in the work of brilliant colorists like you know, Jordi Belair now is a big name in coloring. And some have pointed out anecdotally, like I don't think there's any you know, study on this or anything, that the majority of comic book colorists are women. So it's worth considering the extent to which recoloring actually makes things better, especially when the work of an artist is completely erased in subsequent editions. Not to mention, the way color changes may actually affect the story, like we were talking about um, earlier there. You know, you had the flames in Dream's Cloak are red, uh, the fire that they sit here near, um, all of that. Does it change the significance of the color in the book? Does it ultimately add or detract? There's no real unified opinion among readers. Like if you look through like Reddit conversations around the time of uh, the recoloring, you'll see people who prefer the originals and people who prefer the new versions. Some like that more details of the line work are revealed in the new colorings and some like the more lurid and expressionistic originals. But whatever printing errors appeared or new technological innovations offer, it's important to keep in mind that the original coloring decisions, especially in the 80s, were often made thoughtfully and in the interest of serving the story. So, and then, you know, luckily we've got a lot of the recoloring work being done by Daniel Vazo, so it does create that sense of continuity. You know, you have the original colorist on there. But nevertheless, shout out to Robbie Bush for all his original work. Um, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram now promoting his work as a DJ, uh, DJ McBoingBoing, interestingly no. enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah, DJ McBoingBoing. Check it out. And he still does like conventions and stuff. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, shout out to all colorists, more unsung heroes of the comics world. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sean, for that really deep dive into, into coloring. Ashley, I know you had one other quick thing you wanted to get in here talking about Igbo folktales. Yeah, I'm going to need a moment. I'm still thinking about DJ McBoingBoing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you what is what are the odds that Pat would ever work with him? Ooh. Yeah. I don't know. Uh-huh. Crossover. Sean and I are on the same wavelength. I like it. Pat, when you listen to this, insert Insert your reaction here, please. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. What up, producer Pat here. So, just checked out DJ McBoing Boing on SoundCloud. I suggest all our listeners do the same. Really fun, upbeat stuff, Caribbean funk, disco, electronic music. I'd definitely be down 
to work with this guy. This is incredible stuff. And he's in New York. I'm in, I'm in the city all the time. So maybe I'll hit him up. Maybe you could remix our theme. In fact, why don't we, uh, why don't we just go check out a couple of his tracks right now and come right back? Right? DJ McBoing Boing on SoundCloud. It's dope. You know, I wanted to bring up really quick. My brother said I was good at drawing and I still use my skills to this day. I designed our tile and our font, but Ben joined a bunch of art classes with me when we were in high school together so he could spend some time with me. And I thought that, that was really sweet of him. Um, so shout out big brother. That's a really good big brother right there. Anyway, uh, DJ McBoing Boing, shout out one more time. <laughs> Ashley, I'm pretty sure you had something that you wanted to talk about. <laughs> yes. I uh, I did want to talk about Igbo folktales um, because as I was rereading this issue, I was I was being consistently reminded of folktales that I had heard in the past and because we know and love our dear author Neil Gaiman and the the lore that he pulls from other sources to kind of illustrate or highlight certain themes. I knew he pulled this from somewhere and I I couldn't quite pinpoint the specific or exact folk tales that he was referencing, say like with the King of Birds, et cetera, because there are so many. Um, but a lot of the the folk tales from the Igbo people um, really kind of felt very true to this style of storytelling that we mm -hmm. see sort of demonstrated in this issue. Um, the Igbo people are from north, or sorry, excuse me, like southeastern Nigeria. Um, they have a kind of an interesting and, and extensive history. Uh, if you ever read Things Fall Apart by Chinua Chibe mm. in oh, high yeah, school, you know, that's probably where you'd be first and maybe like primarily exposed to Igbo culture generally because it's about um, the people and their experience, unfortunately, under uh, European colonization, which they experienced in the 19th century. Um, and then they experienced also a, a diaspora in the 60s. Um, you know, a lot of it had to do with specifically with, with job loss and, and needing to move, but there were a lot of other things going on. They actually tried to create their own secessionist Western African state uh, called Biafra uh, in the 60s during that whole diaspora uh, time. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... Again, really interesting culture. There are a lot of societies now in the U.S. that try to regroup people who have Igbo heritage uh, to try to kind of carry on those those cultures. And one of the big parts of their culture is the performing arts and storytelling. Uh, so there are just some general hints or themes that we see in this issue that kind of drew me to that. Uh, specifically... One of them being when the grandfather at the beginning is opening the tale and he says, it was a city built of glass, a city that spread out farther than a man could walk in a day. For this was the place that the first people began and the first people were of our tribe. That is our secret and we will never tell outsiders for they would kill us if they knew, but it is the truth. And so that could be hinting at a couple different things. It could be hinting at, at Hey, if you think of the creation narrative in Christianity, uh, if they if we if they heard us suggesting that we were the first people and not this Adam and Eve that they're referring to, they wouldn't like that because there there was um, there there was Christian influence during the colonization of the Igbo people 
in the 19th century. And, you know, there were mission schools, et cetera. Um, so there would have been some of that. Could also be a hint that, um, again, at a lot of those first people narratives in folklore generally, this is how our people began, and because there are a lot of different Igbo tribes around one another, and they're pretty much independently uh, grouped, they didn't interact a ton, there could have been some sort of interaction with with warring tribes and who's claiming to be the first. Um, there's also this really interesting dynamic with this narrative in general, where we see Cain and Abel later in yeah. the issue. Um, and the fact that Nada meets Cain and Abel in the dreaming suggests that their story has been told already in some regard, that they're a known entity in some regard. So even if the city of glass was the first human dwelling, Nada may have not necessarily been in the first generation of its ruler. So then there, you know, who knows, maybe the city of glass is in some scape or scope, uh, the Eden in some other reinterpreted dimension. So out of the different ways that you can sort of interpret that commentary on these being the first people and the grandfather saying, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the first people, but you and I know we're the first wink. So I kind of like that addition because it, it drums up a lot of interesting fodder for discussion. Um, but the Igbo people in general, they have all these stories about why Things are the way they are. A lot of creation narratives about certain animals and their relationships to one another. And interestingly as well, a lot of folk tales about disobedient daughters. Mm. <laughs> um, so you get a lot of stories about disobedient daughters and you've got a lot of stories about foolish kings who, who chase after beauty. Uh, so when you then read this issue and you've got Nada who is sort of uh, stiff-arming the idea of marriage and of coupling and sort of carrying on a, a, a lineage, um, you kind of see her stiff arming a lot of those narratives because she doesn't, we don't see any like one sort of patriarch that she's disrespecting or disobeying. Mm -hmm. She's a, an entity unto herself and that's a really powerful image, which mm -hmm. is what makes them the retelling of the story and the fact that there are two versions of the story really interesting. The one that we're being told, which is the male perspective story, which is highly sort of reflective of the the folk tales about women we see, mm -hmm. again, specifically with the Igbo people. Um, but then the narrative that we're not told that could reinterpret this encounter very differently. But one of the ones that stood out to me the most, and I'll just give you the synopsis of it, it's called The Disobedient Daughter Who Married a Skull. And I just want <laughs> you guys to point out if there's anything that sounds familiar to you based off of the issue that we've read for this, this episode. So The Disobedient Daughter Who Married a Skull narrates the story of a maiden who was so pretty she had suitors from all around the world. Unfortunately, she was very picky and she was never satisfied with any of the offers. A demon from the spirit world in the form of a skull fell in love with her and was determined to marry her. He went around villages collecting body parts and became extraordinarily handsome. As expected, the maiden fell in love with him once she set her eyes on him and agreed to marry him. After the marriage, the demon took the maiden to the spirit world where she suffered. 
because she realized he was a skull. As they're traveling through the spirit world, he gives back the body parts he borrows from these other spirit friends and all these other men that he gathered body parts from. So she realizes he's a demon. She suffers. However, she's incredibly nice and helpful to the demon's mother. And in appreciation of her acts of kindness and her assistance around the house, the demon's mother then helps her escape and sends her back to her parents. And her parents are very grateful. And on getting back to her parents' home, the father asks her to marry a friend of his, a chief from another tribe, and she willingly consents and bears him many children. And then the moral of the story is, don't marry your daughters off to strangers, specifically. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, seems like you found <laughs> almost a direct <laughs> inspiration of this story. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's that's really what's compelling to me not only about the the Igbo folk tales because they're so descriptive, they pull from things that that people obviously would be very familiar with. They also, uh, specifically the tradition with storytelling, there's like a call and response. Sometimes they'll the narr- narrator will open with a, like a, the first half of a proverb and then the audience knowing the proverb will respond with the other half. Um, or they'll have, you know, all, the narrator will open with a story and then the audience will say something to the effect of like, we hope it's a good story. We hope it's a, like a story with a good ending or a happy ending. Um, and also they'll open their sort of traditional storytelling at twilight specifically. So after all chores have been done um, and after a meal has been eaten because they want people to be happy and satisfied while they're listening to the story because that makes the best wow. audience. Um, so at twilight, so w- where is the story taking place? The frame narrative is like at, begins at twilight. You yeah. have that opening, you know, after a meal. And, uh, and then you have this, this like moral folktale, uh, about this woman who denies somebody far more powerful than her. And then again, the moral is ambiguous, which we would expect from Gaiman because he's constantly sorting, sort of pushing things into gray right, areas, right. which is again, r- really great for conversation, for, for discussion with regard to like, what is morality? What is truth? And yeah. what is like the, the right thing here? Uh, so that's where we get, you know, these concepts of, of Nada as this like really powerful, judicious, wise queen, um, kind of fulfilling that, that kingly narrative that we read about in Igbo folktales, but also fulfilling that, that sort of diso quote unquote disobedient daughter narrative as well. And that's where we get that really sort of muddying of the waters as to what the lesson is to be learned. I, I like how Ashley felt like she had to be like, Hey everybody, I know I usually bring some really awesome deep dive stuff, but today it's just like a little sprinkling. And then she's like, psych, here's my super soaker 4,500. And just like douses us all with this like huge deep dive uh, into something that probably not a lot of people knew a whole lot about that were listening to this. So thanks for that, Ashley. Possibly. No, of course. Even all I saw is Neil Gaiman admit that he, made up the story of the lizard who lost his male member or uh, <laughs> the trickster who sold ape dung to King Lion. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I made it up. <laughs> right. Which is like so delightful, but you still get like those forms, those yes. structures yes. from somewhere. Yes. 
and so I just love that he is so sort of lost in his own sauce that he's like, yeah, I made mm-hmm. it up. But it's so it's so familiar because he's so lost right. in his own sort of narrative sauce. So it's just really yeah, lovely, no. I think. Um, but hilariously, kind of linking both of my, my mini deep dives, there is an Igbo proverb uh, that connects to the weaver bird, and it is this. A wayward woman is like the weaver bird. She uses her perch on one tree to scout other trees. I was like, oh, okay. <sighs> Thank you. Damn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hello, mm-hmm. patriarchy. Welcome, yeah. <laughs> welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for attending. <laughs> it's like neat. So it makes it really like an extra interesting prologue to the Doll's House storyline. You know, like one that Neil Gaiman wanted to make particularly more feminine uh, mm-hmm. was kind of his goal with the Doll's House story and you know thinking about gender as it relates to stories as it stories as they connect as they create a sense of continuity mm. of lineage mm. of family of culture yes. and how that's sort of played with throughout this throughout this storyline uh it makes it even a, a a better you know pro- of course there are things in this prologue that are there are direct images that are uh, sort of reproduced later on in, in later issues that we'll come back to. There's like an almost symmetry between this and the later issues, uh, the end of the Doll's House story. But it's really nice to get some of those additional layers that I hadn't even considered. Yeah, it's it's funny how Gaiman in this issue, it on at first blush, this feels so frustrating to read as a woman because you're like, this is horrible. Why yeah. Why wouldn't this have a nicer ending? Do you hate women, Neil? But then <laughs> you you go back and you take your time with it and the thing that keeps coming up is like, there are children's stories, there are women's stories, there are men's stories. This is the man's mm. story. The women have their own story. Don't think about the women's story. That's not the one we're telling. But because it keeps coming up, that's all you can think right. about is yeah. this is not this is not the full story. We know as the readers, this is not the full story. Tell us the full story. So that's all you end up thinking about is there's something off here. Let's get Nada's perspective as opposed to the story that's being told to you sort of unwillingly. Yeah, it's great. And, and what a, what an interesting, like one, two punch of the sound of her wings. And then this, it's like just a complete break from the style of storytelling, the, the, the things that we were concerned with, you know, in 24 hours are completely different than the things we're concerned with here. Exactly. Especially since death is referenced, but never featured. She's talked about, but it's like, she will not partake in this event. Amazing. Grandmother death. Grandmother death. Well, thank you so much for that, Ashley and Sean, for leading us through four really great discussions. We're going to wrap up today, as we always do, talking about our favorite panel. Notice I didn't say page. I didn't say panels. (laughs) I said panel. (laughs) The singular panel. Um, So I'm going to go first. Sometimes I do that. Uh, My favorite panel is with the king bird when he is looking shocked and off to the left 
and says, yes. so this is no man, no God, but something else. Forget him, Nada. Find a breathing man made of blood and bone and flesh and skin. This other can never be yours. But just his facial expression. Um, and one thing we're going to try and get better at is putting our panels into Discord. Um, this beautiful, I have a beautiful fuchsia pink behind him. And just like his exclamation with his little crown on his head is just marvelous. So that is my. Can, can you? This is. Can you hold that yeah. up? I want to see what the original yeah. coloring looks oh, like. Oh whoa! Yeah. So. Wow. See. And again, when you listen to this, you can come <laughs> into the incredible. Discord, and we'll have these images in there so you can see them as well. Okay, I want you to see ours, which is, which is like a cotton candy pink almost. It's oh, even... that's so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just, it it has such a different feel to it. Mine's like, mm-hmm. exclamation, oh my God. Yours is more like, <laughs> oh, don't do this thing. I'm trying to be your pal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Sean, you just showed me yours. So why don't you go ahead and let me know what, what was your favorite uh, panel? Check out how I'm getting this Sean sneak in. My favorite panel was repeated three times. So it's three panels, but only one image. And I'm giving it to the, extreme close-up shot of uh nada's face you know uh, at at the shores of the realm of death uh where she's asking how can i be your queen come on what oh man we picked the same thing yeah no go 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 go. i want to hear what you have to say about it no i well i mean mine is purely because it's just such a beautiful image and there's Mm -hmm. so much emotion conveyed in that you know in that drawing it just feels so much like life this feels like a person i'm looking at you know it's just everything from the pencils the inks the colors it's just absolutely perfect so i don't have any deep reason for it other than that i find it stunningly beautiful and i find it conveys something so human but yeah you should go with the same one because i want to hear your take yeah yeah so like my mine is the one where she looks particularly frustrated and fed up <laughs> with morpheus uh, yes. at oh, yeah, this yeah. point right for, for a similar reason in that it's it's so emotive and i've definitely given that face before um <laughs> But, you know, in previous I feel like panels, I got that face today. <laughs> Not you, but I received that face today. <laughs> but, like, in other panels that we see, Nada, she's, again, she keeps being highlighted for her wisdom and her beauty, so she's constantly shown as being very regal, and sort of, it's sort of like a distant take, where it's like, yes, this is a gorgeous woman who has a lot of power, so you see her from a, a distance, generally, until then, you know, things get more and more dramatic and she's thrown into the dreaming and then, you know, she's trying to run from from uh, Kaikul. But in this panel, we have that close, like you said, that close-up of her face and just how expressive she's being. You know, she doesn't have that same amount of power she has anymore. She doesn't have all of her refinement. She's entirely naked. And then you've got that sort of, like, light painting over her face and the rest of her body to like sort of showcase the bones and the death of her uh, I just think is is just really it's powerful it almost like it's almost like she's more alive in death than she was when she was alive all right Ashley snake style what you got for uh, your favorite non-morpheus character gosh 
this was hard because I didn't want to pick the obvious, but I think I have to go with Nada. Yeah. Like she's just an incredible character. Um, knowing what we know about her, but then just the way that this this tale is showcased, as as much as it it sort of has a limiting factor on her perspective, it's, it still enhances that there's something more to this and there's more story to be told. So the fact that she can't be contained in a short mm. narrative, verbal narrative, um, I think is really compelling. Thanks, Ashley. Sean? Bird King, baby. Oh, Bird King mine. all the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, lots of... Sandman minor characters have gotten their own spinoffs. Uh, Death, of course. Um, Thessaly, the Corinthian, uh, the dead boy detectives, Lucifer, <laughs> all spinning off from Sandman, yet we've never gotten a Bird King ongoing series. Where'd that crown come from? How does he take it off and put it back on? Uh, there's lots of unanswered questions here and lots of places to go uh, in the extended Sandman universe. All right. So thank you, Sean. My backup was going to be <laughs> the grandfather, primarily because of the one line that I think, Sean, you mentioned earlier when he said, you will know it when you find it. And that is just such a grandfather <laughs> yeah. thing to say. It's just a perfect grandfather <laughs> moment. Yeah, that's 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 solid uh, grandpa energy yep. in there. It really is. All right, so this week we took a look first specifically at Malcolm Jones the Third, and really took the time to think about who he was, his importance in his job as an inker, um, and his unfortunate, sad early passing in life. Sean then used that as a springboard to really dive into what an inker does. And again, you can pop over into our Discord if you kind of want to see more. Sean's going to link out to that DC um, work that they put together to kind of show what an inker does and the different variations that different inkers will have over a penciler's lines. We then talked about the importance of weaver birds and how they are seen in many different cultures and are used in multiple different ways, but a lot of times to kind of show uh, some pretentiousness potentially, although that's not really what we get in this version of the Weaver Birds. Pulling back over into the more technical side of comics, Sean then talked to us about coloring and how a colorist even did their job in the past, having such a limited use of colors, cyans and yellows and blacks, and just what that limited them to do, and then how they had to utilize those constraints, because we know that sometimes a bit of constraint can really breed a lot of creativity. We wrapped up with Ashley taking us a little deep, we can say, into the folklore of the Igbo people and potentially finding the basis for today's story in the tale, The Disobedient Daughter Who Marries a Skull. As always, thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller. Only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. 
Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.